I will tell you, this is the point at which most of the home folk groan a little bit because, oh no, Bill's going to make us do stuff. Because this is a time of worship, I do expect you to be participating a little bit. I want you to be thinking. I want you to be pondering. I want to challenge you. You have heard this story a lot. You can't hear me back there, Jim? Can you hear me now? Yes? Better? Did we forget to turn my mic on? Was that it? Yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. Wasn't my fault this time. Wherever Charmel is, wasn't my fault this time. Um, you've heard this story before. You've heard it a lot, right? Anybody who's read the Bible has probably heard this story about Jesus cleansing the temple. I want to challenge you to understand that you might get a little bit different picture of it today than what you've heard before. Okay, I shouldn't be contradicting anything, but making the picture a little bit fuller. So now I have to ask you the question, and I want you to honestly answer this question. Have you ever had to be taught a lesson more than once? Anybody? Multiple times. Sometimes in the same day. Sometimes in the same hour. As of December, Steph and I hit 30 years married. I need to learn the same lesson a lot. And she's sitting back there just about dislocating her neck, nodding her head. It is a universal characteristic of mankind that we are slow to learn. I can remember times in my childhood where my parents had to repeat the same lesson multiple times because I just didn't get it. Or, let's, let's be honest, I got it, I just didn't want to listen to it. So, not only do we see that in our own lives, but we see it in the words of Scripture. This is one of the things that I absolutely positively love about Scripture is because God preserved history, real history with real people that were really knuckleheads. Let's be honest, right? Peter is my hero because Peter walked around with one foot in his mouth most of the time. How many times did the Israelites have to be told that God was leading them through the wilderness in the book of Exodus? I mean, think about, they just witnessed the plagues, right? They just went through the Passover. They see the pillar of cloud standing before them on their way to the Red Sea. And then they hear the Egyptians coming and the pillar moves behind them, between them and Egypt. And what did they say? Way to go, Moses. (laughs) What did I do? You brought us out here to be killed. I didn't. God did. God brought you out here and he's going to deliver you. Then they they crossed the Red Sea with the pillar in front of them. They walked through the desert for like 30 seconds. 
Way to go, Moses. You brought us out here to die of thirst. God's still right there. How many times did God tell Joshua to be strong and courageous going into the land of Canaan? How many times in Scripture are we told that we need to have faith and not worry? How many of you struggle with worry? Now, I'm not talking about medical depression or anxiety because some of us struggle with that too. I'm talking about just worry, right? You worry about your kids. You worry about your job. You worry about your paycheck. You worry about groceries. You worry about whether or not you're going to be able to put gas in the car because I don't know if I qualify for another mortgage to pay for a tank of gas. We really aren't particularly good on the uptake when it comes to learning lessons. And I'm convinced that this is the driving reason behind the fact that God has given us his word. And it's not oral. It's written down. So we can go back to it and read it over and over and over. And have you ever read it and went, that wasn't there before. (laughs) Anybody? Is that just me? Okay, good. Sometimes it takes us a while to process. So he preserved history for us, for his people, so that we could learn from that history. And hopefully not make those mistakes again. Hopefully. Now how well did that work for Israel? Read the book of Judges. Right? The book of Judges is the, is the prime example of not learning your lesson the first time. Or the first 20 times. Right? God delivered them. They rejoiced. They worshipped idols. They were oppressed. They cried out for deliverance. God delivered them. They rejoiced. Lather, rinse, repeat. And it keeps going on. He also gave them traditions and festivals to keep. As reminders. And now, we hit the setting... For our scripture passage today, which is in John chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 22. So if you want to get out your Bible, which I encourage you to have, if you don't have one, we've got some in the pews. And if you are one of these technological people like I am, feel free to pull out your phone and tap to the appropriate verse. That's okay. God can inspire the word on a phone screen as well as he does in paper. At the beginning of these verses, we're told it's time for the Passover. We know that Jesus was in his ministry for roughly three years. It is very likely that this was the first Passover of his ministry. Now, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I want you to remember that setting is the Passover. It's a big deal. So now, as is our newly founded tradition... I'm going to ask everybody to stand up while we read God's Word. And in case you're not familiar with this tradition, let me explain. After spending 20 years in the military, 10 years on civil service, when a higher-ranking official walks into the room, we stand up. 
Please tell me who a higher ranking official is than God. So we stand for the reading of his word. John chapter 2, starting verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let all who have ears to hear listen closely. Please have a seat. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Passover. Depending on the historian that you read, whether they are really conservative or really, really, really probably more accurate, they will tell you that there is an estimated between 200,000 and 2 plus million Jews that would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's a lot of people. Um, By the way, that doesn't include the people that already lived in and around Jerusalem. That was, could you, all right, let's go cruising the coast. Cruising the coast, spring break, scraping the coast, the crawfish festival, the barbecue festival, and every other festival that we have here on the coast, all on the same week. Yeah, and Mardi Gras. Yeah, we'll throw that in there for good measure. (laughs) Can you imagine what Jerusalem was like? Also, that number probably doesn't include those who couldn't go to the temple. Because they were ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Or they were Gentiles. That was probably just the, as Danny put it, the good Jewish believers. There were a lot of people in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It would have been like New Year's Eve in New York City. And one of the things that was specific to the Passover, to the Jewish faith, worship was only quote unquote permitted in one place the synagogues were not for worship the synagogues were for teaching now as Daniel tell you as I'll tell you teaching should cause worship <laughs> if, if the Bible teaching you are hearing doesn't cause worship there's a problem with it but the synagogues were not a place of worship worship took place at the temple That was prescribed. That was directed. And the temple complex was not just 
one big building. Now, anybody else in here ever been to Salt Lake City, Utah? Okay, you flew in. <laughs> so so there's only like four of us that have seen Salt Lake City, right? The, 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 the Mormon temple is this huge structure, all enclosed, big, 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 beautiful, beautiful architecture. What you can see behind the wall that you can't get into. Unless you are part of the inner circle. But Kira, if you could put that slide up on the screen. This is a, a rough approximation of what the, the temple looked like. There was the small inner chamber. The holy place. That had inside it the most holy place. Where the high priest could go to make the appropriate offerings. The outside of that holy place was the court of the priests, where the priesthood could go. All the Levites and all the, the priests were allowed inside that location. And if you look up here on the screen, if I had my laser pointer, which I didn't think to bring with me today, if you look just to the, the left and down a little bit from center, there's a little uh, horizontal T shape on the screen. That right there is the holy place and the most holy place. And the immediate area around it is the court of the priests. A wall separated that court from another smaller courtyard, which is the court of Israel, the men's court. And it was restricted to only ceremonially clean Jewish Men over the age of 12. Very specific. That could include the priests and the Levites. But no women. No children under the age of 12. And definitely no Gentiles. Outside that, as Danny illustrated in the children's moment, we had the court of the women. Which was open to all ceremonially clean Jews. Regardless of age or gender. And that's where you would see families with small children. You would see widows. Sometimes the men would just stay there with their family. They wouldn't go forward into the, the further court because they would be worshiping with their family. And then surrounding all of that, which is the kind of yellow outside... You have the court of the Gentiles. Everybody could go to the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could go, beggars could go, people who were ceremonially, who were unclean. That word that starts with a C that apparently my mouth cannot make today. Could go to this court for worship, but they could go no further. And if they did, execution was prescribed. In that space, everybody could approach God for worship. Now, we take it for granted. We can, anywhere in the United States... 
I can drive around the country. I can find a church that is open on a Sunday. I can go in and I can join them for worship. There's some I might not. But I can. We take that idea for granted. But that wasn't the case in Israel. The Ethiopian eunuch that Philip met on the road would have been allowed into the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as he could go because he was not intact physically. That's what eunuch means. He could not become a Jewish male. He could not, he could not even go to the court of the women. That's as far as he could go. And he was a God-fearing worshiper. If you remember his discussion with Philip, as Philip climbs into the chariot with him, they are reading scripture. And he's, when he understands who Jesus is, he says, is there any reason I can't be baptized right now? Oh, that more people would ask that question. But he could not go any further. So if you think about this filtration system of boundaries in the temple, right? Where you have everybody and then everybody except those that weren't clean enough. And then only the men and then only the priests and then only the high priest. You would you'd get into your mind that it was really crowded in the court of the Gentiles and then got much less so the further into the temple that you got, right? And in verse 14, John tells us that the temple, that's the temple complex, in the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons as well as the money changers. Now let's talk about them for just a minute. We'll start with the livestock. Why were there people selling oxen and sheep and goats and pigeons at the temple? Anybody? For the sacrifices. In order to worship at the temple, there were a series of dictated sacrifices that Jewish people had to make. For example, if you had a child, that child had to be redeemed according to the Old Testament law with either a sheep or a goat. Or if you didn't have the money, you had to provide a pigeon, which is how we understand that Jesus and Mary were not wealthy because they sacrificed the pigeon. For Jesus. So these people were selling the animals that were required for offerings, sacrifices, sin offerings, fellowship offerings, purification offerings, and, and so on and so forth. Now we're talking about the first century of Israel. We're talking about the, the first century when Rome occupies Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and so on and so forth. And the Jews are scattered all over the place. Now we're most familiar with the area of Galilee because that's where Jesus did a lot of his ministry. That was a long walk. Just from Galilee 
Of course, they would go around because <laughs> they wouldn't go through Samaria. Nobody goes through Samaria. That's like Van Cleve. That was a joke to see if you're all awake. Okay? <laughs> Would it be better to say Wiggins? Might be better to say Wiggins. They couldn't take the animals with them. If you're traveling overnight and you've got livestock, there are thieves. There are wild animals. Your livestock that is supposed to be without blemish, when it gets to Jerusalem after 50 miles on the road, might be blemished. It might be dehydrated. It might not be in best health. You know, you may have started out with the cream of the crop. But by the time you get there, you wind up with the nearly dead. And so, not yet. And so, they had to have cattle available there to be purchased. Then you had the temple tax. Everybody had to pay the temple tax when you got there. And people came from all over the place. People were coming from Syria. People were coming from Rome. People were coming from Greece. People were coming from all kinds of different locations with all kinds of different currencies. And if you've ever traveled overseas, you know that exchange rates vary based on the minute. Right? Today. And that's because we have the ability to communicate those exchange rates really quick. But now what if the, the, the currency in this town where this, this Jew is coming from is a copper coin that weighs exactly 2.3 ounces, but the requirement for the temple tax is a silver coin that weighs 4 ounces. How many of those copper coins is it going to take to make the silver coin? That's what the money changers were doing, was trading that out because... The Jews, look, if there's anything that the Jews made sure they wanted to do, it was to not violate God's law. That's why the Pharisees got their start in the first place. How do I keep from breaking God's law? And so they didn't want to break God's law by offering a coin that was less than the prescribed amount. And so they had to get their money changed to the right currency for this temple tax. It was a needed service. Now, there has been a tendency to believe, and, and to be honest, I have, I've been one of these people, that the money changers were probably being dishonest as well. That's a good possibility, but Scripture doesn't say that here. So why did Jesus do what he did if these were necessary services? People needed these things to worship. He made a whip out of cords and he drove them out of the temple. He poured out the coins of the money changers. Now, I happened to hear a podcast that was talking about this particular passage. And the, the speaker was saying he has in his mind that Scrooge McDuck, 
the cartoon character with all of his piles of gold on the table in front of him, right? And how they're just stacking it up and counting it. And then all of a sudden Jesus comes over and flips that table and there's coins flying all over the place. And you can see Scrooge McDuck's face as all of his nicely counted stacks of money go all over. Then he told the people selling the livestock, get out. Get out of my father's house. Do not make it a house of trade. Why such a visceral reaction from Jesus? We have to look at a little bit of geography. See, right across from the temple, there was this really nice place called the Mount of Olives. And in between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, there was a valley. The Kidron Valley. That was open. That would have been a great place to set up money changers and livestock sellers. And it was outdoors. And it was wide open. And the animals could graze. And the people could get a breeze. Because, you know, if I'm seeing two million people inside the court of the Gentiles with all of the livestock... And all of the people, it's hot. And it smells. And it's hot. Why not put those things outside? Jesus didn't have a problem with what they were doing. Jesus had a problem with where they were doing it. And that problem was because of the impact. So now, put yourself, close your eyes, put on your imagination cap, okay? Imagine coming into the sanctuary for worship on a Sunday morning. Go ahead, close your eyes. Close your eyes, you get to the front doors, okay? You get to the front doors and you come in, and right at the sanctuary doors, there are bank teller windows, So people can take out money to put into the offering plate. And then there are, there are people just inside offering you coffee and donuts. And oh, by the way, then you have ushers walking up and down the aisles offering you Bibles and hymnals and Bibles and hymnals. They're good and necessary for worship, right? And so, they're doing that. And now, standing up here at the front of the sanctuary, there is a worship leader who's trying to lead everybody in a chorus of, How great thou art. Do you get the picture? How hard is that to worship? How hard would it have been to enjoy the choir piece this morning? And to worship God if this was in the background? start our worship service I specifically asked Danny this week if he would open us up like he normally does with that time of silence why do we have that time of silence 
because our life has a tendency to sound like that soundtrack. Especially if you've got kids, that's where the goats and the cattle come in, right? Because they eat everything. That time of silence is an opportunity for us to quiet our minds, to quiet our voices. I'll be honest, it is hard sometimes. It is really hard sometimes for Bill, sitting up here behind the drums, to quiet his mind. And it's really hard to not judge what I'm seeing. Because there's a lot of times where we're ready for worship and I see folks that are still fellowshipping. And fellowship is good. Fellowship is necessary. Fellowship is something that we're encouraged and even required to do. But sometimes we let it get in the way of our worship. Imagine that background noise. No, by the way, I really wanted to try to figure out how to do this. And y'all can be very thankful to God that I did not. Because I wanted to come up with a way to recreate the smells to accompany the sounds. Right? Because the sound is only part of it. There were people who were trying to worship God and they couldn't. That's what made Jesus mad. Even worse, the folks that were set up in the court of the Gentiles selling the animals and doing the money changing, they had to have permission to be there. You know who they got permission from? The priest. The high priest. And you can tell because as Jesus is clearing the distraction, John tells us that the Jews, right? Which, by the way, just a little study note for you when you're reading the Gospel of John. Anytime you see that phrase, the Jews, he's really talking about those who were opposed to Jesus. Normally the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the priests, the Levites. The experts in the law, whatever you want to call them, that's the Jews. That's John's abbreviation. And so they came to Jesus and they said, basically, what authority do you have to do that? What sign do you have to show us that shows that you have the authority to drive the people that the high priest has authorized out of the temple? The disciples said, and John wrote this, so he was one of them. It says, the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Anybody know where that's written? It's in Psalm 69. Psalm 69, starting in verse 6. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor by me. O God of Israel, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a a prayer of David brought to mind to the disciples by Jesus' actions. And so we we ought to think about this. 
Don't let those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Are there things that we do that are good and right and necessary in worship that cause other people to stumble? Are there things that we have set up as traditions, as normal in our relationship with God that cause other people problems? Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. Do we have a zeal for the Lord's house? Now, let me tell you, that does not mean that we yell at kids because they ran in the sanctuary. Okay? There's a lot of reasons you should not run in the sanctuary. Children, I hope you're listening. Most of the reason you should not run in the sanctuary has to do with the fact that a lot of people in this sanctuary are not as young as they used to be. And if they fall over because you ran into them, they are going to be hurt for a long time. I'm starting to be one of those people. There is nothing about this sanctuary that has... God does not say do not run. God does not say do not laugh. I get a kick out of some of the forums that I read on Facebook. I, I read a lot, of, a lot of Christian forums and people who are critical of pastors who use humor. I don't get it. I just don't. Now you can use humor inappropriately... But we ought to be joyful people, especially when we're in the sanctuary for worship. However, however, we need to also be mindful of those who are coming to worship with us and not cause them to be unable to worship. So we need to do it with a heart of love and compassion. Selling the animals was necessary. Changing the coins was necessary. They enabled worship. Doing it in the foyer was not. So if we ever set up animal sellers for sacrifices, we'll do it in the parking lot. <laughs> I have heard about people putting card readers on their collection plates. Like, like the little square card readers. To make it easier for people to, to give with their... So we won't do the ATM out in the foyer. That's just poor taste. So Jesus, Jesus chases these people out. And the priests ask him, who gave you the right? And Jesus... Destroy this temple and I'll build it back in three days. This temple's been under construction for 46 years. And depending on which commentary you read, at this point, it wasn't quite completed yet. You're going to rebuild this temple in three days? After somebody tears it apart? Three days? Really? Jesus wasn't talking about the temple that he was standing in. He was talking about himself. And when the disciples... Because, you know, go back to that opening statement about being slow on the uptake, right? Because how many times did Jesus tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be turned over to the authorities, 
I am going to be crucified, I'm going to die, and I will be raised on the third day. And it was only after Jesus was raised on the third day that they went, oh, he told us this was going to happen. And that's what John says here. John says his disciple, his disciples remembered that when he was raised from the dead. So the issue that we have at hand, and I'm going to try to try to tie this all together in a nice package so that we can walk out the door with it and hold on to it for more than maybe 15 minutes. So we have this doctrine that is the, the doctrine of the priesthood of the believers, right? Anybody ever heard of that before? Maybe once or twice. Let me read a passage to you out of the book of Exodus. Going to be in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up onto the mountain or even touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went up. And as we continue. To a verse that I've lost. Because I went too far. I should have started in verse 3, not verse 10. Well, Moses went up to God. The problem is I'm trying to read with my glasses on and it doesn't work. <clears throat> well, Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall go to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen that what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. One of our distinctive beliefs is the fact that we are individually priests. We don't have a need for a high priest to go into that most holy place to offer a sacrifice because Jesus did that, right? And we have to understand what is the role of the priest in Israel to simplify it, to boil it down really, really, really basic. The priest is a person who stands in front of God on the behalf of people. And we are to be a nation of priests. How do we do that? Well, there's people that we intercede for. We have friends and, and loved ones and acquaintances who are not believers. And we stand before God and we pray for them. Anybody ever do that before? Pray for the lost? Okay, that's part of being a priest. But see here, in, in Jesus' time, the priests were standing between God and the people. 
But they weren't standing before God to represent the people and, and, and make intercession for them. They had allowed a wall to be set up between God and the people. They hindered worship. Why was Jesus mad? Because people who genuinely wanted to come into God's presence, because He is worthy of all praise and all worship, they wanted to come into His presence and they couldn't because they were shouldered out by a a herd of oxen and a flock of sheep and a bunch of pigeons and some guys playing Scrooge McDuck with their scales and their coins set up. Now see, I said this happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and it's recorded in the other Gospels too. And if you look at the other Gospels, it comes at the end of Jesus' ministry. And so there's a lot of people who are like, well... That's just because John doesn't stick to a strict chronology, so he lumped it in at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where the other disciples who stuck to more of a timeline put it at the end, and it's the same event. Personally, because I know how hard-headed I am and how slow I am to learn, I think it happened twice. I think Jesus went to the temple for the Passover at the beginning of his ministry and he saw this and he drove out the money changers. And then at the end of his ministry, when he was about to be crucified, he went back to the temple for the Passover and guess what he found? More cows. Put yourself in Jesus' shoes for a minute. Would you be upset? If somebody was standing in the foyer and said, nope, you're not allowed to worship Jesus today. Now we need to make sure as that nation of priests that we don't put ourselves in a place where something we do says to somebody else, nope, you can't worship Jesus today. So that means if they come in wearing clothes that we don't think they ought to wear. We don't keep them from worshiping Jesus today. That means if they come in with piercings that we don't think they ought to have. Or tattoos that we don't think they ought to have. If they've listened to to heavy metal rock and roll music in the parking lot. On their way in. I know it's going to shock y'all, but I don't listen to contemporary Christian music on the regular. Mostly because the theology is really just questionable. We cannot be the reason somebody cannot come to Jesus. It's more than just being the reason that somebody does. It's we can't be the reason somebody doesn't. We have the ability to come directly before God in our worship. And so we have the warning. Don't impede that for anybody else.